Oh, hi. Hi there. It's me, Star Tribune, your host of this new show. So thank you for joining me today. Just to give you a little introduction into what Ohai is, it is a show for modern language lovers, modern linguistic fans, anybody who likes the concept of language, anybody who has ever heard anybody say something kind of silly and is piqued by the syntax, who appreciate tonality. I don't know, I'm kind of droning on about that, but this is a show for modern linguistic thinkers. How about that? I like that a bit more, you know? I'm not an academic. I am in the, the essence and like spirit, but I do not have a degree in language. So this show is not me speaking to you as some critically acclaimed professor from Harvard or what have you. This is coming to you from somebody who loves language. I love words. I love listening to people speak. I love analyzing what they say and how they said it and like why they said it. Not like why as in why, which I also analyze, but why as in like cognitively, <laughs> I suppose. A little background onto your host, me, Star Tribune. I am the creative director of Laurel Light Productions, which is a creative production company and development lab for artists. And we focus on globalism. My goal is multilingual films to be produced and distributed massively throughout the global market. So a good example of a multilingual project is the miniseries by Netflix titled The Eddie. A jazz club owner deals with the everyday struggles of running a live music venue in Paris. Starting, starring, <laughs> starring Andre Holland, Amanda Stenberg, Joanna Kulig, Tahar Rahim, Randy Kerber, Leah Bakhti, Adil Debbie, and those are the first people who showed up on Google. So it's a really good show, and it's set in Paris, focused around a jazz club, and the owner is an American jazz artist. And, you know, so basically when he's in Paris, when he's speaking to everybody else who's a Parisian, assumably living and working in Paris, it's primarily in, I guess, Franklish. Like, they do speak some English, but it's mainly in French. But then his daughter comes from America. So, you know, you do see this dialogue where he's talking talking to people in French, talking to people in English, and I mean, it's just also more tied into not like, oh, this is a multi-language film, but that this, that's his world. It exists in both languages, truly. So uh, it's a good show if you like jazz music. This is a very jazzy vibe, good storyline, lovely actors. I've been enjoying it, making my way through. So shout out to The Eddie for being a great example. Multilingual film project. But back to Little Light Production. So when I saw that, that came out in May 8th, 2020, and this has been something that I'm building for a while, you know, on a much smaller scale. And it really gave me hope and just to see how something like this folded out so beautifully. You know, it's nice to see that. So we want to focus on developing projects like that and providing resources to people who would otherwise not have that through their works in film and television and theater. So labs, writers' workshops for affordable costs. We do headshots for an affordable cost, you know, reasonably priced services for young, or not young, just for creatives who otherwise would not be able to have access to some of those things that give you an upper hand in finding work and empowerment through whatever avenue, under at least film and television, that I can provide. And however else I can empower you, please let me know. <laughs> That's something we're doing there. And 
this lower light productions is what brings you Ojai. And this is more of like my analytical academic questioning format for this show where I will be doing research onto different topics. I'll be posing a question and doing research and you know, we're not gonna come to a solution. Some things are open-ended. They're tidbits for you to think of. How does that apply to you? And here's the information thus far, you know? And I hope you guys enjoy this journey. And yeah, so this is a huge effort to Lower Light Productions. And I wanna thank everybody who supports that team, Lower Light Productions, and anybody who supports me in efforts of that Garden Party podcast, our first podcast venture, and my creative producer, pal, friend, travel buddy, Alyssa Montenegro, who's also a host of Garden Party podcast, and you know, she's also been a very integral part of like the development of like everything that's led to here so far. And I hope we can provide something. <laughs> and I hope we can all benefit each other and that you enjoy this, because I enjoy it. So you're enjoying something I enjoy, you enjoying Sibong. <laughs> so we're gonna kinda get started talking about the benefits of learning a second language and polyglottism, I suppose. <laughs> so, you know, a bit more on me in terms of language, like, okay, Star, tribute. <laughs> Where do you fall in the line of speaking to us about language? Well, I grew up in the theater, I'm an actress, and language is a huge part of that. You know, I've gotten the chance to study Greek theater, to study Shakespearean theater, to study contemporary plays, modern plays, silent plays, doing mime work, you know, specializing in comedy. And like when you're in the arts, words, or even if it's in terms of mime, you still have to translate what they said into words, like charades, you know? That's the point is you're doing an action and it's a word association game. What am I doing? You know, you're like pulling your hands down as if you're grabbing another. So I see you doing what? Grabbing. And because you're kind of maybe sitting on like an invisible bucket or something, I'm like, oh, he's got his legs open. I'm assuming there's an invisible cow in front of him and he's grabbing the udders. Which now they say that, I don't know, people are like, oh, he's grabbing the udders. Well, you would say milking a cow. He's milking a cow because you see him grabbing and pulling at the others and you know if I'm grabbing and pulling at something with both of my hands that probably would be me milking a cow but yes through my ventures in theater I grew interested in language and language was keen to me and then you know over time I became attracted to the actual study of linguistics so I you know I call myself like a casual linguistics learner you know I'm very heavy into research and Information, always looking for more information. And then on the language front, I studied French and Korean. So <laughs> I've been studying Korean for two years. So as of this summer, it's been two years since I started to, you know, learn Hangul and go on to learn Korean. And I've been studying French for about four years, very seriously with coming from having some prior understanding. So yeah, those are my main language ventures and I, I do have like a very casual understanding of Spanish. I, I went to school in Miami, so I have been in just multilingual environments, academically, work-wise, different types of jobs, working in theater, working in retail, just in New York and in Miami, and I've gotten to travel a bit. And I've been put 
in these situations. And there's times where you also interact with people, you know, and maybe you don't speak the same language. And there's sometimes a situation like we still have to communicate whatever needs to be done. And when you get into the habit of even having to just like work it out with somebody coming from no common linguistic understanding, it really is interesting. But most time you work it out because we have like a basic human understanding of things. So right now we're actually gonna open up the topic I mentioned earlier on learning a second language and the benefits of it. Then in the future, I wanna do a more broader episode on that topic and polyglottism, including the minds of bilingual children and ways to improve study habits. So that'll be a more expansive episode, perhaps the next one. But so some of the benefits for learning a second language would include meeting new friends, new connections, I think it's very special to be able to speak to somebody in their native tongue because you're going to get the most genuine, honest version of themselves. Some people do put a lot of practice into expressing themselves, however, and when you interact with people on that level, they'll kind of be like, oh man, I wish there was like a word for this, you know, or like there is no, like, you know, when there's just, especially in that case, when there's no word to express how you feel in the language you're currently using that does cause a lot of strain on maybe the nature of the conversation. It's not always negative and you usually be able to pass by it. But there's a lot of benefits. You're gonna be able to get new jobs and you know have more of a deeper understanding with more people. And onto the job aspect, employers love it. Even if the job doesn't require you to be multilingual or be bilingual or even use a second language, it shows an advancement of education and effort raising the chance of employment. And you know, a lot of people don't wanna put in the effort of learning another language because they know it's very hard and it's kind of just rewiring your brain in a sense and a lot of people aren't willing to do that. So when they see, oh wow, your own language, they are kind of easily impressed in that, especially in the job market. So that really, there's you know some research to show how likely you are to get at least an interview by having a language on your CV skills. And in the aspect of Lorelite Productions, wanting to focus on global film production and we want to work with international production companies is because our world is very global. If you've been following the job market, it's heavily global, you know, as of right now, I'm recording this in August 2020. So we see the benefits and the downsides of globalism more blatantly in everybody's face. And we also see just how connected we are, how much we need international travel and how that really bounces off and affects everybody involved greatly. So it's becoming essential. And it's a progressively necessary and essential skill for anyone who wants to keep up with today's rapidly increasing global economy. More and more people recognize the importance of learning a second language. They do find it more impressive. You are going to get that upper hand in a job interview than those who only speak one language. They will begin to begin to get left behind. And as somebody who does live in a city that is multilingual, I don't, I'm not like, at least not in job interviews that I would comfortably say I'm fluent in Spanish. And I have, there's a lot of jobs I'm unable to get because that's absolutely what the market requires in Miami. As you begin to learn a second language, you'll find that the acquisition techniques you're using can be applied to learning additional languages as well. And 
went to me studying French and studying Korean, I do have a goal. I'm an aspiring polyglot. I want to go on to speak Russian and Japanese and Norwegian and work on my Spanish. I want to be able to talk to as many people. That's why it's so important to have that opportunity to make friends and new connections because I'm able, A, we're able to broaden both our horizons and it just opens so many more doors to just more possibilities, truly. That is limitless. It could be space. You never know. You can meet somebody who happens to only speak a language other than your native tongue, and they somehow get you a ticket into space. I, that is like a very real scenario now. So, <laughs> it when you once I began more so with learning Korean when I learned Hangul. Obviously, it was learning a whole new alphabet, and I had this moment where I was like, "Wow, I'm really learning like a whole new alphabet right now. Like it, it's completely different." from my alphabet, my understanding of things and like my identifiers. And that was so cool. I felt like I was in kindergarten and I was like, I remember, but you know, I was able to kind of tap in and I was like, well, this, I've done this before. This has happened before. I remember, I learned to read and write before I went to school, but I remember learning. I remember writing my name for the first time. I have a very good memory. I remember writing my name for the first time. And those are very important moments. Because I remember being like, wow, I just wrote like my name on paper and like back to names. This episode, the rest we're speaking on past learning second language, we're actually going to be going into namesakes. So yeah, in learning Hangul and learning a new alphabet, as I've been approaching my other language ventures, I can kind of use at least this processing and understanding I have to like whatever I needed to do to rationalize the transference of, I guess, information into another language, the more I can kind of understand and grapple that. And even though it might be different in terms of learning like the Russian alphabet, which is its own venture in itself, and kind of processing like I understand how I can get here. And these are some positive cognitive effects of learning to speak a second language as I can train my brain to analyze and process different linguistic structures, which is increasing my ability to replicate the process with multiple languages. And this process is called metalinguistic awareness, where your brain learns to identify the techniques of learning a language or see them as code, which then helps you break them down into a series of steps. You know, so you're going to retain that muscle memory. Your brain won't intrinsically understand how to learn a language and how different languages are structured through increased awareness of syntax, grammar, and sentence structure. So acquiring a second language improves your memory and increases your attention span. And the process of becoming bilingual or multilingual is a consistent exercise of your brain which challenges you to concrete, concentrate, and boost your problem-solving skills. Bilingual students tend to test higher on standardized tests than monolingual students, especially in the areas of vocabulary, reading, and math, which definitely most of school. <laughs> As you learn to toggle from one language to another, you improve your multitasking abilities. They also have been shown to be more logical and rational, have better decision-making skills, and have more perceptive and awareness of their surroundings. Plus, it can even enhance your native tongue because you're still instilling that awareness. So now you're reflecting not only on these other languages and these other grammatical structures, but you're also reflecting on your own. And personally, I catch myself saying one thing and I'm like, you know, I'm just gonna be like, oh, how funny. Like it, it is even something, like, oh, how funny. I would say like this and I would say like this and brings up questions I have when like the meaning and just maybe how the grammar of one language is set up affects your emotions, which is another topic we'll be diving into in the show. And keeping your brain active for longer 
is very important, keeping that muscle exercise just past your school. Most people will probably say, most people a year after they graduate high school are literally like, well, I don't know, you know, it's all gone. It's all gone. How is it all gone? And because they're not using that muscle. I recently took a math class because I was like, I haven't done math in a while. Like, yeah, I've done like very simple math. And when you can just kind of Google search the math question into Google, you don't even really need to do the math. Like, I could be like, oh, this shirt's 30% off. And Google search was 30% off of $56. And it'll just tell me. I don't even have to, like, think, what's the process to multiply percentages? But that's, you know, another thing. But yes, keeping your brain active is very important because it'll help you stay, quote-unquote, smarter for longer. Recent research has shown that bilingualism can stave off the effects of Alzheimer's and dementia by years. Regardless of their education level, gender, or occupation, bilingual subjects in the linked study experience in the onset of Alzheimer's on average four and a half years later than monolingual subjects did. Study results out of the American Academy of Neurology are showing that speaking more than one language increases the amount of neural pathways in the brain, allowing information to be processed through a greater variety of channels. They've also begun to demonstrate that multilingualism can improve development in the brain's areas of executive function and attention, no matter what age the language learner is. And it boosts your creativity. Researchers conclude that multilingual speakers are more creative than monolingual speakers. Learning a foreign language not only improves your ability to solve problems and to think more logically, it also allows you to experiment with new words and phrases. Leveling up on your second language skills forces you to reach for alternative words where you can't quite remember the original one that you want to use, which gives you a sort of divergent thinking, which is the ability to identify multiple solutions to a single problem. Putting yourself out there, allowing yourself to think divergently, and practicing and studying, which increases your focus, you'll eventually need to go beyond the book and speak to people. And there is this hindrance and something you'll probably have to overcome at some point if you've already started learning a new language or you are practicing even sometimes your own native tongue from what I've seen that can serve as your second language sometimes, you know, that happens when people move. You're not a kid anymore. If you're not, if you're not a kid anymore, it's harder because when you're speaking, you know, they'll say like you're like in college, you're taking elementary French. You have like the vocabulary level of an elementary school student. <laughs> and that can be as we get older, a bit jarring because you're not able to properly express yourself yet or fully in as complete as you would in your native tongue, which is why it's important to maybe give people a chance to express themselves in their native tongue and you have some mild sense of understanding. But putting yourself out there and speaking to new people and speaking to your tutors and speaking to your peers who are also in the same, you know, course line, it builds your confidence because you are allowing yourself to be vulnerable, allowing yourself into a situation where you're going to make mistakes, you're going to say the wrong thing, you could say something that could be like, you're like, I'm trying to say cheese, but you just called like my sister ugly and unmarriable. It happens. So those are some of the techniques you use to develop a second tongue that result in a greater sense of open-mindedness. In order to master a new language, conversations with native and fluent speakers are essential. If you're shy but want to meet new people, using the excuse that you want to practice your speaking skills is a great opener and doorway to making new friends, expanding your horizons, and broadening your life experiences. Plus, who doesn't want to be more interesting?
Some of this information and research provided in the last few bits were from an article written by FluentU.com, which I do recommend for some of your assistance, perhaps, in immersion language learning online or at home. And they have programs for a few different languages, and they also have a great blog, which provides a lot of resources, just into maybe like that thought process and some good tips on developing new language skills. So we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, which is called What's the Name of the Game? From the years 1993 to 2000, world-famous musician changed his name to Love Symbol, a mashup of the gender symbols for man and woman, introduced with no pronunciation, leaving fans and journalists alike wondering what to call him. It was settled that he would be addressed as the artist formerly known as Prince. Because in 93, a frustrated and weary prince wanted out with his record label, Warner Bros., after about five years of going back and forth in court. There's this interview from Oprah where, you know, she's like, what do we call you, you know? like. First of all, what do I call you? Uh, friend, I hope. Friend. Friend's good. Friend's good. You know that a lot of America and the world is confused about this whole name what we should, how to address you, what the symbol means, and I want you to clarify it for us all. Well, just like Muhammad Ali and uh, mm -hmm. Malcolm X, people like that change their name. And some people uh, pick names that are hard to pronounce. Mm -hmm. and it just so happens I pick one that you can't pronounce. I don't know how to pronounce it yet. If you ever, don't even know how to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. If ever I'm told, you'll be the first to know. Uh -huh how to pronounce it. Yeah. So how did it come about? The symbol came to you, and the symbol is like a combination of female and male? Yes. And that is why you're now, we have no name for you. So, you know, she had to ask, hey, what am I to call you? And this is an example of what we would do if people stopped using a namesake. Arise would come a new way of identifying people. Shorthand identifiers are often efficient, why people sometimes rely on nicknames. So, a question I'm posing to myself and you today is, are names meaningful? Are they meaningful inherently, or do we give meaning to people or objects through name? Do you find value in your name? Do you add the value to your name? Or does it add value to you? Could you just name yourself 78 and your kid be named 79? You know, like I don't care less. Have you ever given an inanimate object a name before? In regards to inanimate objects, it could be because you're attributing a human-like mind to that object. Sometimes, you know, like that doorknob might look like a person, so you might jokingly call that doorknob Susan every time you leave. <laughs> or, you know, if your fridge isn't working, you might be like, oh, come on, good old Jim. Jimmy the fridge. <laughs> Jimmy the fridge won't open and close properly anymore. And that's because Jimmy the fridge is no longer working. We tend to give names to inanimate objects only when they're malfunctioning, because if my phone is acting up, if my phone's working properly, it's just a phone, but now if my phone's acting up, I'm slapping and I'm saying, come on, let's get back to life, Susan. 
I don't know why every inanimate object I have is named Susan, but you get to name your own inanimate object. For one instance, in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology, you found that participants, for one instance, in the May 2014 study in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology, found that participants ended up trusting a vehicle more as it inquired more anthropomorphic features, such as self-driving steering and a voice. A separate 2016 journal of experimental psychology, general co-author by Epley, showed that people were more likely to believe that computer-generated text read to them by a human voice came from a human mind than they were when they read that same text, which is very interesting. So, you know, when you read, like, a text out loud and you're looking at it and you're like, so you wanted me to go to the baseball field after you asked me to join you at the beach 30 miles away? And you're reading it out loud, and I guess you're not convinced by it. But if I had a computer read that same text message out loud, I would understand it more as a person, as a third party. Interesting. See, when they think anthropomorphic features, self-driving and the voice makes sense. Now, I'm also thinking it's going to have the eyelashes, you know, want to slop them out sometimes and put on the antlers. That's what I think of my car having anthropomorphic features. When we're able to form some sort of connection with technology, more specifically, we're projecting onto the technology, we tend to view it as human-like, which may in turn make us give it a human name, you know? So I'm like, Susan talks to me, or this car talks to me. Since it talks to me, I'm gonna give it a name, you know? So, you know, it's like, hey, how are you? I'm like, oh, I'm doing all right, Tiffany. I pick very fun names, so Tiffany's the car, because she's talking to me. And when it comes to personal objects, there is a difference between the level of importance on one's emotional attachment that they could place on it. Most people don't give nicknames to like the hairbrush or the pencil they use in school, but you know, a golfer might name one of his clubs Old Reliable or Jimmy after his father because it has some special meaning that separates it from the rest of the golf clubs. You know, you're probably not gonna name all of your golf clubs, but you're gonna name your lucky golf club. Or if I have like, you know, a lucky scrunchie, but even then, I might just call it my lucky scrunching. And if you're feeling lonely, you'll also probably name things, such as Tom Hanks and Castaway naming the volleyball turned best friend, Wilson, because he's trying to forge that human connection. We name some things because they're important, but some things could also become more important to us because in certain situations, like boats in the harbor, we may be forced to name them. And just as we're more likely to anthropomorphize and name certain objects, there's also certain conditions that make us more inclined to dehumanize something. So, you didn't get your name. You probably just woke up one day and eventually you caught on that they kept calling you Evan. <laughs> you know, so you're like, okay, my name's Evan, you know? They're like, hey, Evan. And you're like, they're talking to me, I'm Evan. Somebody named you Evan. And if you're in the position at some point to be naming other more little children, Evan, it's going to reveal a bit about you, according to Laura Wattenberg, author of The Baby Name Wizard. When a child is born, the name reflects more on you than him. The name doesn't belong to you. You're making the decision because your child can't name themselves, but what you choose says a lot about your personality. As your child gets older, the name will also reflect on them, especially when they're doing things like sending out job applications, because people do draw conclusions based on someone's name. It sends out a strong signal before the person even walks into the room. My name is Star. I am an actress. My name is Star with two R's, so it's a porn star last name and a very dramatic stage name. But I didn't name myself Star, and I don't think 
if I got the chance, I'd name myself Star. I honestly probably named myself Stella because I was like the name I picked. For, I don't know, maybe if you all picked a name, like my name was Stella. Like when I was a kid, like I didn't actually ever refer to myself as Stella, but I was always like, yeah, Stella's the name. <laughs> and Stella's also a variation of Star. Etoile, Stella, Estrella. But you know, as an actress, I go into auditions and people will be like, is that a stage name? Is that your stage name? Or, you know, they're like, oh, of course, you must think she's hot shit. Her name's Star. And I'm like, no, I didn't even pick this. I'm just trying to chill. And I had to grow into it. I kind of didn't identify with it. I also didn't identify with my middle. I kind of, I personally didn't heavily identify with my namesake. Like, I felt like it definitely played into treatment of me. But because of that, I personally tuned it out. Now, would you let your child choose their own name? Here are some lovely examples from a New York Times article written by Danielle Braff. When she was pregnant, Satya Twena, a 36-year-old hat maker and fashion designer in Ojai, California, was in a yoga class when her daughter's name came to her in a meditation. The name was Wish. Wish named herself because she was already active and alive in my wife, said Jeffrey Zorowski, 45-year-old, who founded Witchcraft from Tom Colicchio before moving to California to work as an advisor and consultant. To the dismay of Miss Twenna and Mr. Zorowski, their second child didn't appear to choose his own name initially. So he was without a name after being born at home in January. It didn't take long, though, for the infant to offer his own signs, Mr. Zorowski said. The little one opened his eyes when his father placed sage under his nose. The family remembered that song that played during the birth was all about wisdom and elders, and a post-birth visitor had a... 28-year-old son named Sage. So, Sage it was. Many parents have begun to follow their children's lead when it comes to gender and identity. Now, some are allowing their children to choose their names or to change their names as soon as they have a real preference. I could just picture them kind of being like, huh. You know, like, I will say for Sage, they definitely chalked that more into, like, inspiration. I wouldn't say Wish may have chosen her name, but Sage was inspired, you know? I would open my eyes if somebody put anything under my nose. If he had put, like, a jalapeno pepper under Sage's nose, I bet Sage would have been like, that's a jalapeno pepper. And then he'd be like, hey, JP, it is. Hey, that's actually, that would be, I feel like I feel like I might buy into that more. It's because they went in with the son, you know? And they were like, your son's named Sage? I bet Sage was handsome, so they're like, Sage it is. But we're going to go over to J. Martin Griffith, who's 36, who works for a clean energy company in Philadelphia. He has the option to choose his name from birth and beyond, but still can't make that decision. So we have a nameless J. Martin Griffith, 36. 36 years, can't pick a name. Mr. Griffith's mother named him J, which doesn't officially stand for anything. My mother always told me growing up that I could choose a new name, he said. I batted around a thousand names, but could never settle on any one. He's tried lots of J names and also considered non-J names, but nothing stuck. When he was growing up, some people called him Martin, while a few people called him Jay or Jada Letter. Today, the vast majority of him people call him Marty or Martin, as he still hasn't settled. Mr. Griffith isn't the biggest fan of letting children choose their name. It's hard enough naming someone else, let alone naming yourself. And the name has a surprising weight in the world, I think, he said. I think, because he can't confidently make that decision either. <laughs> it can't be either an attempt to empower their children or to avoid the pressure of assigning a name to an offspring. I really want to check in on Mr. Griffith because I hope he picked a name. I hope if he does pick a name, he has like a 50th birthday where he's like, hey guys, 
I got a name, you know, I've been spending the last 50 years kind of nameless, just floating out here being Jay. You know, some of you guys call me Marty, some of you guys call me Martin, but now I'm going by the name Alamond. I'm like, oh, okay, Jay, you know, you couldn't pick anything, but now you're coming out here, Alamond. And I'm picturing you like A-L-O-N-N-D-E apostrophe. Almond. <laughs> like, hmm. I don't even know the full name, but I like it. <laughs> We're gonna go into given name a bit too. Uh, Webster's dictionary definition of a given name is a name that precedes one's surname, especially first name. The definition of the first name is the name that stands first in one full's name. Very literal. My name is Star. It is the first name in my name. You have your surname, and then you have your first name. Then we have given name. Given name, also known as first name or forename, is part of your personal name, which identifies a person and differentiates that from the other members of a group, typically those who have a common last name. The term surname refers to a name bestowed at or close to the time of birth, usually by parents of the newborn. There's another term, Christian name, which is the first name, which is given at baptism in the Christian ceremony. Then we're gonna go into name order. Now, in Western order, as it's commonly known as, the order is given name, family name. Star is my given name, and tribute is my family name. And in countries that have cultures predominantly influenced by European culture, they'll also partake in that. There's the order given name, father's family name, mother's family name, which is commonly used in Spanish-speaking countries to acknowledge the families of both parents. Today, the order can be changed legally in Spain and Uruguay using given name, mother's family name, father's family name. The order given mother's family name, father's family name, is commonly used in Portuguese-speaking countries to acknowledge the families of both parents. In Russia, people inherit their father's first and last names. The father's first name becomes their middle name, a patronymic, with the suffix meaning son or daughter of at the end. So, for example, if your dad's name was Sergi, if you were male, your middle name would be Sergevich. If you were upper class, the patronymic suffix type also indicates class status until the USSR, when such things became taboo. Peasants had other patronymic suffixes prior to that, meaning it not only indicated genealogy, but class just through your name. Now, the order family name given name, which is commonly known as Eastern Order, is primarily used in East Asia, China, Japan, Korea, Malaysian, Chinese, Singapore, Vietnam, Southern, India, Hungary, Austria, Bavaria, France, and Belgium, Greece, and Italy, possibly because of the influence of bureaucracy, which commonly puts the family name before the given name. In China, forget my pronunciation, Sivai or Pangxi. And in Korea, a generation name may be shared among all members of a given generation within a family, an extended family or families, in order to differentiate those generations from other generations. Where used, generation names were usually given only to males, although this varies from lineage to lineage and has changed over time. The sequence of generation names is typically prescribed and kept in order by a generation poem. In Chinese, Pangxilian or Paizige, specific to each lineage. While it may have a mnemonic function, these poems can vary in length from around a dozen characters to hundreds of characters. Each successive character becomes the generation name for successive generations. 
After the last character of the poem is reached, the poem is finally recycled, though occasionally it may be extended. Generational poems were usually composed by a committee of family elders wherever a new lineage was established through geographical immigration and social evolution. Thus, families sharing a common generation poem are considered to also share a common ancestor or have originated from a common geographical location. Important examples are the generation poem for the descendant of the four sages, Confucius, Minchis, Yanghui, Xingzi, the Kong, Min, Yan, and Zing families, the four families during the Ming dynasty, Emperor Jiangwen respected Confucius and Minchis so much that he honored their family with generational poems. These generational poems were extended with the permission of the Tongzhen Emperor of the Ming Dynasty, the Tongzhi Emperor of the Xing Dynasty, and the Ministry of Interior and the Paiyang government. Besides the Han majority, the Muslim Hui Chinese people have widely employed generational names, which they call Hongzi Paiyi. For instance, in the Na family, the five most recent generations used the characters Huan, Zhu, Song, Yan, and Hong. This practice is slowly fading since the government began keeping public records of genealogy. To quote John Proctor from The Crucible, because it is my name, because I cannot have another in my life, because I am not worth the dust on the feet of them that hang, how may I live without my name? I have given you my soul, leave my name. John Proctor from The Crucible. In 1948, two professors at Harvard University published a study of 3,300 men who had recently graduated, looking at whether their names had any bearing on their academic performance. The men with unusual names the study found were more likely to have flunked out or to have exhibited symptoms of psychological neurosis than those with more common names. The Mikes were doing just fine, but the Barons were having trouble. A rare name, the professor surmised, had a negative psychological effect on its bearer. Since then, researchers have continued to study the effects of names, and in the decades after the 1948 study, these findings have been widely reproduced. Some researchers suggest that the names can influence choice of profession, where we live, whom we marry, the grades we earn, the stocks we invest in, whether we accept it to a school or hired for a particular job, and the quality of our work in a group setting. Our names can even determine whether we give money to disaster victims. If we share an initial with the name of a hurricane, according to one study, we are far more likely to donate to relief funds after it hits. I was too young to donate to Hurricane Sandy, and I can't remember any hurricanes with the S, but I don't, I don't know, I live in South Florida, so I don't, I don't know about that one. A problem that he cites in some of these studies is an ignorance of base rates, the all-over frequency with which something like a name occurs in the population at large. It may be appealing to think that someone named Dan would prefer to be a doctor, but we have to ask whether there are so many Dr. Dan simply because Dan is a common name, well represented in many professions. If that's the case, the implicit egotism effect is no longer valid, as also researchers who have been more measured in their assessments of the link between name and life outcome. In 1984, the psychologist Deborah Crisp and her colleagues found that through more common names were better linked, they had no impact on a person's educational achievement. In 2012, the psychologists Hui Bai and Kathleen Briggs concluded that the name initial is at best a very limited unconscious prime, if any. While a person's name may unconsciously influence his or her thinking, its effects on decision-making are limited. Follow-up studies have also questioned the link between longevity, career choice, and success, geographic and marriage preferences, and academic achievement.
1948 study, the majority of the uncommon names happened to be last names used as first names, a common practice among upper-class white families at the time. Those names, too, served as a signal, but in this case as one of privilege and entitlement. Perhaps their unsuccessful bearers thought they could get by without much work, or that they could expose neurosis that they would otherwise try to hide. We see a name implicitly associate different characteristics with it, and we use that association, however unknowingly, to make unrelated judgments about the competence and suitability of its bearer. The relevant question may not be, what's in a name, but rather, what signals does my name send, and what does it imply? Well, you know, that sounds very stressful. People aren't going to like my name. People might think your name is... You know, you see that in the African-American community where people have names that are considered ghetto and then, you know, there's some other job application and people are like, well, I don't want to hire this person because I'm already putting on a layer of who they're going to be before I even meet them. So, fuck that. That sounds horrible. I don't want a name. <laughs> I'm going to scrap that. So I go to the courthouse, I want to change my name, and or I am pregnant, and they're like, name your kid. And I'm like, no. <laughs> am I legally obligated to have a name? I want to scratch it. Or is this baby legally obligated to not have a name? In the United States, going without a name is not inherently legal. Police won't arrest you for not having a name. They're not going to come to your door and be like, hey, who are you? What's it to you? <laughs> but you can't legally identify yourself without one, which would make things difficult for you. For instance, you need a legal name on a birth certificate or card to obtain a license or open a bank account or get a job or passport. The virtue of common law adopted through court decisions rather than legislative actions. And you can change your name without a court order simply by using it in all aspects of your life. While state laws govern how you can legally change your name in general, Beauregard can become any Tom, Dick, or Harry as long as the new moniker isn't intentionally confusing, such as a number. A vulgar word that could induce fighting, including racial slurs. Used with fraudulent intent, such as skipping out on unpaid debts. Gotta get out of town. <laughs> Someone else's name for intent of misuse, which is really messed up. And I want to say that this episode was plotted before the birth of Elon Musk's and Grimes' baby, which I'm gonna, I'm just looking up the kid's name right now. Yeah, so I had already done research for, you know, the majority of this part of the episode, like, before the birth of that child. So when I saw that come out, I thought that was very funny. I was like, this may not work out for them. But yeah, the, the name is like XAI, which is an AE symbol, but AI, A-12. That's their kid's name. They did that. And they had to, they did have to change it a bit because that baby was born in California and you can't do that shit in California. <laughs> They're like, no, no, no. They can only have names that use the 26 alphabetical characters of the English language according to the state's constitution. Other countries, including Australia, Germany, and Spain, have similar laws regarding first names. That said, you still could not legally change your name to nothing because you could have no acceptable way to verify your identity. No matter where a woman gives birth, she is legally obligated at some point to report it to the appropriate government entity because you can't do anything in privacy. Usually Department of Health and Human Services are vital records that entails filling out a first and last name for the child. How long the mother has to fill out that birth certificate varies by the state. So you do have some time, most of the time. In fact, parents of the U.S. Olympic gold medalist skier Picabo Street didn't name her at all. 
She simply chose it herself when she was three years old, having been called baby girl until then. So shout out to Picabo Street, whose parents just, they're like, she'll figure it out. Although naming customs for babies different across the world, all countries have some sort of vital records collection, whether centrally or locally controlled. So maybe why you're being named what you are will change, but the, re the fact that you have to state it does not. If you are a citizen of Earth, that is something you have to do. <laughs> and uh, Article 7 of the Kemp Convention on the Rights of a Child state that all children have a right from birth to a name. So this is what the UN declares as something we have a right to. If you pick something too off the wall, beware. Because in 2007, the New Zealand government revoked Pat Sheena's Watson's name selection for their son, the offender. For real, the number four, real, like for real. Like the United States, Australia does not allow the presence of numerals and legal names. German parents must follow a stricter standards enforced by the local registration office called the Stammdesant. They must select a moniker that reflects the baby's sex and will not incite ridicule for the child's name. In Zambia, boys and girls are expected to change their names at puberty and may go through several names in life. In spite of customs and regulations, research has shown that baby names do not dramatically affect their success as adults. Instead, according to a study published in the book Freakonomics, name choices reflect more on the parents than on the child. For example, in the U.S., Misty and Joey correlated to parents with lower education levels, while Dobb and Lucienne come from more educated groups. Likewise, a socially undesirable name does not foreshadow a lackluster future for the person. Nevertheless, for the three babies reportedly named ESPN, all caps, after the sports station in 2006 going through school might not be a catalog. There are societies that have very different naming traditions. In some communities in West Africa, babies are only given a nickname until their naming ceremony a year or so after birth. In rural regions of China, women lose their names at marriage and just become wife of so-and-so, while men keep adding names throughout life. In many areas, names are associated with lineages, clans, occupation, parents, and aren't just about the individual. But I can't think of any society where there isn't at least some way of identifying this person versus that person. I think it comes down to the practical need in a community larger than just two people to identify each other. There is this article, <laughs> this study in Harvard that is quite interesting that argues that Chinese women don't attain full personhood because they become nameless and by extension, names equal personhood. There are criticisms of that, of course. In many societies, personhood is deeply embedded within family identity and social roles, so much that individualism is a bizarre concept. Even in the West, most women often change their names to their husband's last name, and in public may be called Mrs. Smith after their husband, Steve Smith. This is ex less extreme than the ethnographic example in the article, but it brings up a question about what the emic perspective might be. But it's an interesting article about the power and purpose of naming in those regions, and it does not bring up the debate about importance of personal names. So, I hope you give your kid cool names. I don't know, I have some pretty cool names planned that I won't be sharing. You'll just have to wait to, if I ever, if we make it past this and I can have a child and like things are cool, uh, I will name it something cool, because I have a cool name. So I do, like, okay, I have a cool name, so I feel like I can't name my kid something super basic, because they're gonna be like, well, why did you just give up? They're like, so you got this cool name, but you ain't cool. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of my thoughts on that. But I wanna thank you guys so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy, and I hope you, 
catch me online, you can find us at Lorelight Prod at Instagram, at Instagram, at Lorelight Prod on Instagram. You can find me at star.laurel on Instagram. You can find the podcast at Oh Hi on Instagram. And you guys have a wonderful day. Oh, hi, and goodbye.